The Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Welcome, everybody, to the Provoke Media BCW podcast. Um, when I was in Cannes a couple of weeks ago, um, the big topic for discussion, certainly the big new topic for discussion, was what AI um, is going to bring to the communications field over the next few years. And while a lot of that conversation was around generative AI, I think the more interesting conversations are about some of the other implications that new technology has for our business. And today we're going to be discussing cognitive AI technology and the ways in which that can provide clients with mitigation solutions against weaponized disinformation. Um, joining me for this discussion, we have Chad Latz, the Chief Innovation Officer at BCW, Zach Schwitzky, the uh, co-founder and CEO of Limbic, and Caroline Tarpy, who is the Chief Revenue Officer at Limbic. Um, we'll get on to explaining for those of you who are not familiar uh, just what Limbic is and what it brings to this discussion in a couple of minutes. But I want to start with Chad. Um, first of all, thanks for um, participating in our podcast series. We're delighted to have you. Thank uh, you for having and, us, Paul. And um, just give me a little bit of background about the way in which the disinformation issue has evolved for BCW and its clients and how we got to this point where you are developing your own um, solutions and partnerships to deal with this issue. What's the, what's the scale and, and dimension of this for corporate clients in particular? That's a great question, Paul. You know, I think for, for quite some time, we've been running some pretty sophisticated intelligence solutions for our clients, particularly in the corporate reputation and public affairs arena. So, you know, the, the, the concern about disinformation or, or, uh, or, or information that compromises corporate reputation is not a new thing. And in fact, actually, as you were talking about uh, AI as a topic and sort of topic du jour, I, I was kind of had my memory jogged because I think uh, back in 2019, we had a conversation of some of the early AI solutions that we were developing so for clients. So here we kind of come a bit full circle. But we've decided to, to, to really double down on our uh, investments in the AI space and, cog and cognitive AI and our partnership with, with Limbic for Decipher for, for a number of reasons in terms of what we're seeing in the marketplace. This, this growing risk to corporate reputation uh, and the potential impact um, to company value as a result of disinformation. Uh, we saw that obviously the general concern grow going into the 2020 elections as it related to disinformation. And then we've seen some very material impact, our work in the healthcare space, for example, and the impact of disinformation, the ability for people to appropriately seek out vaccine treatment, for, for example. The second piece of this, of course, is the rise of generative AI and, uh, and what we're seeing by way of deep fakes and how the mass, I'll say the mass consumerization uh, and availability of this technology is putting more of the technology in the hands of bad actors or nefarious actors. And then of course, sort of the third variable that kind of creates this moment in time and the, and the need for clients and how this has really sort of changed is 
is you know heading into the 2024 election cycle you know the public has, has cited disinformation as being the fourth most important issue to them just behind uh, just behind uh, crime hacking in the economy um, and we we know that there's going to be a very big concern it's not just the US a US issue or US problem 46 countries around the world are going to be having elections in 2024 so we know all of this has sort of created a, a unique moment in time for us to to, to be focused on bringing PCW decipher to the to the to the marketplace. Great, and and tell me um, a little bit about sort of um, how you found Limbic and um, what specifically attracted you to this partnership. Well, you know, actually, it was a, it was a, a, a mutual interest, and I'll also let also invite Zach to tell his part of the story too. Um, but you know, we had been aware of Olympic for, for some time. Uh, in fact, one of the co-founders uh, comes out of the communications uh, and PR space specifically. So there's been uh, there's been a bit of a longstanding relationship in, in that regard. And I think we had we had recently issued some commentary and had some visibility on the impact of disinformation on corporate reputation specifically. And so, really, the moment was ripe. Uh, you know, I guess we we got we got together to start to shape the solution a little over three and a half months ago. Um, and uh, and that manifested in, a, in an exclusive partnership with Limbic to to deliver BCW Decipher. So that's that's a little bit on on our end. You know, our clients are constantly demanding um, more sophisticated data and information solutions to help inoculate risk, whether that's on the disinformation side or high impact narratives. And Limbic was an amazing partner with a with a with an only solution in the marketplace of its kind. So we we saw a, a natural marriage there. Yeah, Zach, maybe you can give us a little bit of sort of backstory, origin story for, for Limbic and uh, talk a little bit about the mission. Definitely. Um, it's great to be with you, Paul. Um, so when we started um, Limbic back in 2017, it was really um, the underlying uh, idea was to use predictive insights to help inform the creative decision making process. So we were working, <clears throat> excuse me, primarily with brands and agencies in sort of a traditional sense. And then in uh, 2019, we got invited to effectively a roadshow with the US government agency. It was looking at different ad tech capabilities that could be adapted to identify and combat mis and disinformation around elections. And so coming out of that, you know, we had an opportunity to pilot, but what was most interesting about that is the way that they were framing up this problem was they were they wanted to accurately classify truth and fiction at scale and you know sort of <clears throat> in real time we looked at that and said one it's technically challenging if not impossible because of the subjective nature of truth now and two if you go down that path it, it requires an arbiter of truth and i don't think very many people would be comfortable with the government serving in that capacity so we sort of took a step back and said, what if instead of framing this as a problem around truth and fiction, we actually looked at it through the lens of believability and what are people finding believable and why? And if we look at it through that lens, it becomes less of a, I'm right, you're wrong. That's how we're gonna to try to solve this problem. And more of like, I can understand sort of your belief system, how that's being echoed in you know existing echo chambers that are out there and really kind of come at it from a different lens that at least on the surface, seems like there's more of an opportunity for a collective success. So that sort of started us down this path of um, 
focusing our business at Limbic exclusively on this idea of information defense or helping organizations identify and mitigate weaponized information really is a catch-all phrase for what's commonly referred to as mis and disinformation generally. But what's interesting about you know, this in sort of the context of BCW Decipher and why we're really excited about this partnership is for the last you know, almost four years, we've been working with U.S. government agencies, foreign allied governments, as well as organizations throughout the private sector. And one of the things that we hear continuously is Limbic is a great solution for identifying and really proactively being able to understand these information narratives with the potential to harm an organization. But our business is not telling you what to do about that and how to do it effectively. So we saw this real need coming out of the different organizations that we were working with to bring that expertise in sort of an end-to-end solutions. So as Chad alluded to, it's, it's all materialized very quickly, but we really see uh, huge opportunities and, and really huge need for this end-to-end solution that, you know, one, allows an organization to be very proactive in prioritizing potentially harmful information that's out there, content really of any type, but then have and leverage the strategic expertise and experience and capabilities of BCW to do something about that in response effectively. Right. Um, Caroline, I, I, coming to you for a second, um, Chad and Zach both um, share my experience, I guess, which is that this, this whole issue of disinformation, misinformation, first exploded onto our radar screens um, with the election and the political process. Um, but um, this suggests that you're now seeing, and, and Chad alluded to this with the vaccine hesitancy issue, um, that you're now seeing this as a major uh, corporate issue as well. And so tell me a little bit about how this evolved from being a government project and, and a political problem into being um, a commercial problem for, for large organizations, large corporate organizations. Well, Paul, first of all, it's wonderful to be here. Thanks, thanks for having us. That's a fantastic question. And, and you know, I think in some ways the the explosion of the issue around the election cycle really just called attention to what was already underlying and the trends that were already starting. So we started to think about things, and I invite you to kind of imagine it this way, in almost a two-by-two two matrix of the types of information that can impact any organization, even though we started to pay more attention around those issues at that time. So if you think about information that's either believable or viral or both, you know, information that's neither of these things is not getting any engagement, no one's paying attention to it, and it's not believed. So it's noise, right? It's, it's not really even on our radar. Now, imagine a focus a lot of us have had over the years, especially working in the corporate sector around viral information. Let's get the, let's get the messaging out there that's going to elicit engagement. It's going to pull in the audiences that we are trying to resonate with. But if that information goes viral, but isn't also believable, it isn't perceived as trustworthy and credible, it doesn't have the impact that we need. And then if we think about it in the, in the opposite way, the same thing is true. It's believable, but it gets no engagement. It doesn't have the impact we want. <clears throat> At the intersection of the, 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 the point of those two items, 
is where is where we identified an opportunity to work across organizations who all have common purpose in wanting to ensure that they understand the threat of particular information of weaponized information that could be both viral and highly believable but also in light of those threats what can our organizations do proactively to think about how to optimize our responses to those and you know these issues are complex. Um, I can actually give you, you know, Paul, a simple a simple story to illustrate the point. And it's a, you know, we're we're named limbic for a reason. It's a limbic technique. So may the story stick with us. You know, many of us are familiar with an organization called Toastmasters. They really do a lot of, um, you know, corporate and public speaking events uh, throughout the globe. Well, in 2015, a man by the name of Mohammed Matani, who was a Saudi Arabian um, engineer, won the world championships. And his world champion speech, he gets up on the stage. So imagine this, he gets up on the stage, he takes out a lighter, he takes out a cigarette and he starts to light it, visible gasp from the audience, right? And he says, what, you think smoking, you think smoking kills? Cigarettes aren't the leading cause of lung cancer. In fact, it's your DNA, it's your genetics. And he said, you know, I, I told this to a large group of individuals, five of them believe me, two of them started smoking. And what was so interesting about that story, he said, words have power, our words have power. And it wasn't that that wasn't actually true, right? There is ample evidence out there that there is, there is genetic susceptibility to this, but it's the way in which information is conveyed, the context in which it's conveyed and how much information is available that can really impact the believability with different audiences. And we know that that's true for, for any corporate brand. Right. So um, let me come back to you, Chad, and ask you a little bit about what you've been seeing as you've worked with, with clients tackling disinformation. I, um, I gave a, a speech at USC uh, probably five or six years ago, the, um, the Kenneth Owler-Smith um, lecture series at, at USC, in which I, I talked about how the disinformation that we were seeing in the election process was going to become a problem for corporations. Um, and I think I framed it as an existential issue for the public relations industry, because if yeah. we can't, as a, as a society, agree on truth, then you know, we're, we're all in deep trouble. Um, and I think there was some skepticism about whether disinformation, the, the scale that we were talking about then, would make the jump from the political realm to the corporate realm. Um, and then, uh, then not, not to sort of dive too deep into the weeds, when the um, COVID pandemic came around, I thought to myself, well, this is going to be the acid test, because... This is a situation in which people's lives will depend on whether they believe science, truth, fact, or some alternate framing that has to do with, you know, drinking bleach and staying away from 5G and whatever the other issues were. And I thought this is actually going to be the end of it. We're all going to come back to reality because if we don't, we're going to die at in higher numbers than, than we should. And that surely is the, where people will draw the line. Um, and I was, as has often been the case in 40 years of writing about public relations, completely and utterly wrong, right? People managed to believe the most absurd things in order to avoid reality. Um, 
And so obviously for the, the vaccine sector, for the pharmaceutical sector, there were huge disinformation problems. But how have you seen the issue explode and balloon and, and escalate beyond one or two industries to become something that everybody is now worrying about? So, you know, there's, you raised a few important points that I that I definitely want to comment on. One is one is um, the advancements of the technology that have allowed the much more aggressive proliferation of information online. So obviously the whole the whole um, focus and fascination with generative AIs put those hands in the tools to scale and to scale information. Uh, the second is, you know, a, a bit of a bit of data that you may find troubling, Paul. I know that it, it definitely raised my eyebrows, which is, you know, the fact that we're headed in a trajectory where generative AI will be responsible for producing a vast quantity of, of, of information on the Internet. And then furthermore, a study, I guess, that was done, done la actually last month that basically said that 73 percent of people are inclined to trust and believe what generative AI presents to it, uh, to, to, to the end user. I mean, I, so, I've seen studies, not to go too deep into this particular well, I've seen studies showing that generative AI is much better at engaging emotionally with patients than most physicians are. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I certainly, certainly I can see how that's become an issue. Sure. So, you know, you've got the volume proliferation and, and, you know, presumably the perceived effectiveness of the persuasiveness of, of, of the technology. I'll ask, I'll ask um, Zach to, to comment on the, the, the idea of truth, because I think it's really sort of central to the thesis here. But, you know, I think what we're seeing here now is, is, is clients and brands are absolutely, you know, if, if there's a collection of topics and themes that they're really, really worried about um, and, and really, really worried about being brought, brought into, the political context is just one facet of, of, of how bad actors look to sort of polarize and, and, and affect audiences. And, uh, and so, you know, it doesn't matter actually who, who I'm talking to, it could be like the world's most famous CPG company. Um, you know, everybody is concerned about the potential impact of misinformation on their, on their, brand, on their, on their brand, whether it's an overt attack on the brand or on a collection of issues for which the brand becomes an accelerant for online virality, if that makes sense. Zach, I know you have a I know you have a point yeah, of view on this. You want I was going to say you you said yeah. something earlier about this not not being about who defines truth, which you and I may have slightly divergent opinions on whether that's a legitimate function for whoever. Um, but but the very term weaponized information, which I wanted to dig a little deeper into anyway, suggests doesn't it that there is a reality and a non-reality or, or does it just suggest that there are opposing points of view it's a good question i think it's both and i i, I want to preface this by saying i'm in no way arguing that truth is not important critically important no, no, to a functioning democracy um but i think when you look at it in terms of changing somebody's view and let's expand that to say changing somebody's view to better align with yours. It can't be I'm right, you're wrong. That doesn't work, right? So understanding it through the lens of what do people find believable and why? And I also, and this goes back to what Chad was talking about and Caroline as well. There's just so much noise out there that if you're an organization saying, 
what is potentially problematic, and more importantly, what should I consider responding to, it becomes a problem of prioritization. So one way to think about you know, how to prioritize the potentially harmful information or content that's out there is to say, well, what's not true? But to Caroline's point, if what's not true is not actually resonating with anybody, it's probably not problematic, right? Or doesn't have the potential for that impact. So we sort of frame it in terms of looking at potential harm and then evaluating you know, your response options or mitigation as uh, through this lens of believability and virality. So we can really kind of evaluate the potential impact versus from an organizational perspective saying, we disagree with that or we think that's false, different than our version of truth. So I think it's more of a framing and kind of giving an organization the ability to accurately prioritize the, the, the narratives that are out there with potential harm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I don't I don't necessarily think that it's uh, useful in the context of this conversation to get into a big philosophical discussion about the nature of truth. So we, I, <laughs> conversation I, I, for another day. Yeah, uh, um, yeah another year. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm happy for uh, I'm happy for us to to use this as a jumping off point. What what interests me is that most of the people that I've talked to about this issue in the communications business have to this point um, been been focusing on some very advanced social listening and traditional communications techniques for for countering misinformation or or for changing the 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 tone of the debate what does your solution and and the whole sort of idea of of cognitive ai bring to the table that's different from um from the solutions that we've seen so far so and caroline and chad please jump in but i think one um and i want to be clear because we use social listening, right, as a, as a data input, um, in addition to other sources. So it's sort of a necessary component. And what Limbic and this PFI capability sort of layers on top of that, right? Um, but I think where sort of traditional social listening uh, falls a bit short from a, looking at it in terms of weaponized information is, is really in, in two capacities. One, a lot of the kind of traditional metrics like the volume of content that's out there, sentiment, even some predictive indicators around virality, certainly don't tell you the full story. And when we talk about cognitive AI, it's really this idea of mimicking what people think. And we've seen, and there's a lot of examples we can talk through that show a really strong correlation between this believability indicator and things like stock price, right? Or we've done a lot of work with uh, an organization called Polaris, which runs the human trafficking hotline and the belief of online or the potential belief of online conspiracies about child sex trafficking is a leading indicator of people actually picking up the phone and calling the national human trafficking hotline right so we've seen you know both first and third party evidence that something that's more emotive is a better indicator of on and offline behavior um two i think when we look at um social listening, there's sort of this um, limitation in terms of how 
it's meant to be applied, right? It's really kind of a brand first approach. So is there information out there, whether it's a tweet or, you know, any other sort of artifact that mentions the brand, our competitors, sort of however we manually set up these queries. And while that's important, when you're gonna see brand specific mentions, the brand is already sort of in the crosshairs, right? It's already been mentioned by definition. So we're sort of taking this, additional proximity-based approach and saying, what if we look at issue areas, right? Human rights, for example, doing business in Russia as an example, the Paris Olympics next year that have sort of the potential to impact all sorts of different organizations, but we wanna look at the issue level to say, is there potential impact for one of these issues? If there is, then let's drill down and say, what brands, what sectors are going to be impacted or at least have the uh, uh, potential to be impacted. And so we sort of take it from this different perspective to try to get out ahead of it. And our sort of internal mantra um, is in order to be proactive, you need to be accurately predictive, which sort of by definition, if your searches or queries are based on mentions of an organization, it's probably a little bit late. Right. I, I that's fascinating to me. I think I, I, I'm pretty sure it was Mark Twain who is most commonly um, cited as the author of the idea that a lie can get halfway around the world before the truth puts on its boots, right? And right. and from a communication standpoint, if that was true in Twain's era, um, it, it it's horrifying to think how far a lie can go today before companies wake up to what's going on. So if this has a predictive um, element to it, it's obviously something that is extraordinarily valuable to corporations who otherwise, you know, have seen the issue explode and, and people make up their minds sometimes before the, the corporation get, can get around to issuing a press release or even formulating a response. Um, so how, how can you do that and how, how reliable is the ability to anticipate and, and predict um, which issues are going to gain salience and which weaponized information is going to be credible. I mean, I'll, I'll have a comment on that, and I'm sure, you know, uh, Caroline will have some additional thoughts to add as well. I, I think one of the things that really um, enticed us, Paul, obviously we've been using a lot of the conventional social listening platforms. One of the things that really enticed us about this partnership is the reliability of, of the predictive indicators on virality and believability. I think Zach kind of explained quite well, you know, the, the, the models for virality, I think we all understand what creates it. The models for virality have been overly simplistic for, for, for as, as long as we can remember. If something gets 100 interactions an hour one and 200 interactions an hour two, the, predictor, the prediction would be that it gets 400 interactions an hour four. But that's, we all know, to your point about how fast information travels. We know actually that's not how information, dissemination information travels. You've got the network effect of humans. You've got obviously bot activity that accelerates uh, the potential distribution of news information um, and, and or potential false narratives. Um, and so, so, you know, there is, there is a, a sophistication to the technology paired with the cons our, our consultants expertise to understand the context and advise our clients accordingly. That we think is 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 particularly um, is particularly powerful. 
So, you know, I think, I think, you know, that, that in and of itself makes it, um, uh, a, a fairly unique solution. These these vari the variables of virality, believability, and and the proprietary measure of potential for impact is really is really quite compelling. So Caroline, speed, yeah, of, yeah, speed of response seems to me to be one huge advantage that we're talking about here. Um, I'm wondering about the other one, which is that traditionally um, companies have always, I think, had to rely on the judgment and experience of their communications counselors um, to decide when it's worth intervening and when it's better to simply just let something die, um, you know, of natural causes. And the fear has always been, if we deny this, if we make a big deal out of telling people that it's wrong, um, you know, I go back pre-internet days to rumors about, you know, if you ate, if you swallowed bubble yum, spiders would come sort of <laughs> zooming out of it in your stomach and, and occupy your lower intestine for the rest of your life. I go back to Procter & Gamble being accused of Satanism because there was a a moon and stars in their logo, all of this nonsense where companies very often didn't engage because they figured, A, it's absurd and nobody will believe it, and B, as soon as we deny it, there'll be media stories and everybody will talk about the denial and it will actually only give more credibility. I'm assuming that you're now in a place where you can predict, and I go back to your matrix, Caroline, from earlier, um, when you should intervene, when you should monitor, when you should stay silent. That's exactly right. There's a few really interesting things in what you shared. I mean, the first is, you know, it's it's not a binary world of, you know, we can only go on the signal and the data or we're only going to rely on what our intuition tells us. It's actually the marriage of those two things that's completely necessary in a world in which we have so much proliferation in AI and in data. Of course, things like social listening create a great foundation of descriptive analytics on what's going on, what are the trends. But what you're highlighting is, well, what about when the signal isn't there specific to a brand? Because the emerging threat or the emerging risk or the emerging signal hasn't yet risen to the level where it's specifically impacting that brand. But the issue is starting to creep into that sector or it's starting to impact things adjacent to what could impact that brand. Because of the approach that we can take, the predictive nature of that approach, and that getting that early signal in the hands of folks at clients and working with people at BCW, that the power in that partnership allows us to then help organizations get ahead of that impact to the brand and start to think, okay, the signal is starting to emerge. Let's perhaps continue to monitor that predictive signal or perhaps it's risen to a level now where we can say, maybe it hasn't impacted the brand yet, but it's close enough, it's adjacent enough that we need to start to take some action and, and uh, craft some strategies. And as Zach you know, shared earlier, that's where for us, um, we're so enthusiastic about the opportunity you know, to work with clients who, who don't simply want you know, the, the signal on its own. They crave that, they want reputation management. They want corporate communication strategy. They want the transformational you know, muscle movements that organizations need in the information environment of today, but powered by a predictive signal 
um, that we just you know haven't had access to in, in in decades past. And I may just I may just add to Paul. You know, I think you know for the the clients that Limbic works with, for where the data becomes absolutely essential. You know, um, Zach gave you the example of the client Polaris, who's dealing they're dealing with human trafficking. The, the 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 accuracy of that data, the preciseness of that data in the context for which it's being used is a level of intelligence that we have not yet seen deployed in the so much in the in the private sector, which is one of the things that makes me really, really excited about what we're be, what we're able to do. The 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 obviously the the much more refined leading predictive indicators, the accuracy of that of that data and the information that allows us to um, guide our clients on critical decision making, either about the business or about their comms strategy and approach, I think is is something that we're we're particularly enthusiastic about. Let's um, let's talk about one of the other things that that um, concerns me. Um, you know, as somebody who's writing about communications and 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 disinformation, which is the the sort of potential for complacency in thinking that we understand how disinformation works because we studied how it worked last time, right? But I'm assuming that like everything else that is, whether you want to call it criminal or just malicious or, or um, potentially damaging, um, it is evolving faster than our ability to measure its evolution, if you like. And so the techniques that we recognize now, because we saw them five years ago or four years ago, um, are, are increasingly um, not the techniques that are going to be used going forward, because some of the tools that you're using to solve the problem are the exact same tools that bad actors are using to make sure that they can be worse in the future. Is that a is that a real possibility? And how do you stay on top of that? And how have you seen the nature of the threat evolve over the last four years? I can jump in. I got a lot of thoughts on that. So we talk about you know BCW as a cognitive AI solution to a generative AI problem. And what I mean by that is you know, generative AI, and there's a ton of potential, right? So I don't want to come across as saying that it's all negative, but I think when you put that kind of capability in the hands of somebody with nefarious purposes, it makes what they're already doing better, faster, cheaper, right? So that means more of it. So I think from that standpoint, um, when we talk about, and I'm oversimplifying here, but I think there's really only five ways to defend against disinformation or weaponized information, right? You have government policy, you've got corporate policy, mainly big tech, you've got the opportunity to educate digital literacy, media literacy, In my opinion, that's generational before it has any real impact. And then you can work with journalists and others to expose, you know, bad actors. The fifth one is you can get out there and compete. And I say that, you know, carefully, because I think the, especially when we get out there, you know, with Chad and talk about these capabilities that we think are really, you know, innovative, and we're excited about, the reality is, is at best, you're sort of leveling the playing field, right? These tools have existed for a while with bad actors. They're constantly innovating. And so being able to get out there and at minimum have the ability to compete with them, I think gives you a chance versus these sort of other four that are more of a sit back and hope somebody does something about it approach. Um, so I think, you know, that's sort of one opportunity. Two, 
and I think this is more positive. Um, the bad actor playbook is, as we like to refer to it, lacks creativity. I sort of compare it to like Hollywood where, you know, creativity is risky and expensive. So you have prequels, sequels, and biopics basically now. So fortunately, the vast majority of, you know, information or narratives that are used to harm organizations or society aren't new, right? We've seen, we often reference like <clears throat> the, uh, some of the narratives that were used um, throughout COVID. And then again, when, you know, Russia invaded Ukraine about, you know, these bio labs over in Ukraine or wherever they need to be based on the situation. And that's just one example. But my point in this is, if you understand what's out there, how it's been used in the past, you can start to predict how it could be used to potentially harm, you know, your organization or a given sector or even society more broadly in the context of an election or whatever it may be, a global pandemic, et cetera. So I think that sort of predictability or the ability to do sort of situational planning combined with some of the tools and expertise that Chad mentioned in this combination of, you know, Limbic and, uh, and BCW really allows you to see and look at what's potentially impactful um, so that you have the opportunity to do something about it. And I really believe, and this goes sort of over the last four or five years of our experience with governments and, and the private sector, that the best offense, or excuse me, the best defense is often a good offense, right? And I think that requires one, you've got to be really firm in what you stand for so that you can confidently communicate that internally and externally and sort of, you know, stand unwaveringly. Um, and two, I think you've got to have sort of the visibility to be able to understand and the tools to be able to say, what's the right message? Who's the right messenger? And what's the right platform and time to distribute that? I might, I might just add a comment too, Paul, you know, just on the evolution of, of, of how things move so, um, so quickly and how, how you need to be forced to adapt. I think those of us who are creating AI solutions for clients now are thinking about how do we develop uh, a solution, a technology solution that's that um, is uh, is able to also sort of evolve? For example, with the information and channel landscape, right? So one of the things I think I really appreciate about the limbic approach, in particular, is that you know the the, the cognitive AI solution sits on top of millions of different data data inputs um, that come from a whole host of channels, whether it's from the dark from the dark web or sort of more mainstream social channels and that landscape is evolving more uh, faster and faster and and more and more over time right like just in the last few weeks we've been talking about threads we've been talking about spill there will always be new channels but the the flexibility the cognitive ai approach to be able to sit on top of that growing um, volume of data whether it's publicly available data through social channels or more sort of tailored and bespoke intelligence that organizations may have I think gives us a bit of the flexibility to adapt to the changing landscape, as opposed to having a solution that's only right for the moment, but may not be right for tomorrow. Okay. Um, I know that this is still um, a, a product and an offering that's in its infancy. Um, have you notched up any wins that you can talk about in terms of, um, you know, the, the work you've been doing for clients. And I'm not asking you to sort of dig deep into the specifics or even, even identify clients by name, because, you know, if you've successfully fought off a disinformation 
campaign you've won and why give it more visibility but are there um are there victories that you can talk about where you've seen the potential and the the success of the product i i think one of the things you you're right you're right, you're right in your statement paul you know like so the nature of some of that work is is not something that you oftentimes it's why uh, the crisis management section of our, our awards competition is always so thin is right. if you've avoided the crisis why talk about it yeah yeah but but you know what I, what I will tell what I will tell you you know as uh, as we've been incubating this solution over the course of the last three and a half months which we and 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 by doing that we've really looked at all of the different solutions in the marketplace and and, and said hey how can we bring something unique we've been having the early conversations with clients to your point across across sectors and every single client it doesn't matter what sector what vertical what practice in our agency services it has a collection of issues that have that are of dire concern to them um, whether they're driven by misinformation disinformation malinformation or just you know just a, a, a narrative for which they want to understand what the impact is and so we've actually already been running early early evaluations for some of our clients on some of the some of the the metric the pro proprietary metrics on virality believability and potential for impact for some of those clients i can't mention those by name but you know the um uh the the interest has been extremely high and and as you know we're on the cusp of launching it uh publicly you know we're uh, we're really excited about the early reception that we've gotten um so one one final question, which you know, both Limbic and BCW maybe can weigh weigh in on. Um, we've talked we've talked a lot about the technology, and I suspect that you know we we could build a a couple of hour conversation around that that side of this. But what are the implications for corporate communications people um, in terms of? I'm I'm assuming that this doesn't in fact entirely replace the experience and judgment of a senior corporate communications person um who you know brings all of the accumulated knowledge and wisdom of their whatever it is 20 30 40 year career to bear on these problems that we're not talking about a, a technology that provide that that replaces existing expertise but merely um facilitates and directs it but but talk a little bit about what the continuing role is for people who you know have invested their lives in thinking about reputation and managing reputation it, it, isn't it, isn't that like the other part of the conversation which is what is ai doing to yes. um the human capacity and engagement on these solutions and um and and so I think you know we're seeing Paul we're seeing generative AI putting certain pressures on the business in terms of what uh, you know where humans play a role versus where the technologies play a role. What we're seeing in this case, as it relates to corporate reputation, is 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 better, more predictable data that allows our experts, particularly on the reputation side of things, to make better decisions. In a way, the um, the the data and the solutions is enabling a bit more of a of a premium consulting approach to how we're to how we're delivering the work for clients whereas you know the other half of the conversation on in the communications industry is like well who's going to get replaced by the tech right like at what level is it going to be the folks that are writing press releases is it going to be the people that are creating visual assets because 
generative AI is so good at that. And then the other, con- you know, the other conversation that we're having here too is that you know, BCW Decipher is really that perfect um, uh, intersection of of artificial intelligence and human intelligence. And we would be, we you know, it would be a a, a mistake to say that the technology in this context could ever replace uh, replace the human expertise. You know, we're we're fortunate. Let's not that, say never. <laughs> well. Maybe for as no, long I think as it may be a never. I, no, I love I, this question, I, Paul, because you know I started my career in intelligence in the federal government, and then moved into working for companies doing data science and behavioral behavioral science um, in the tech sector. And this is such a common question, and it's so understandable, right? Because we actually ask ourselves that a well, lot on all tech. You know, what what PR about self driving cars? What's going to happen in the world of that? The and PR the reality... industry is full of recovering technophobes. Um... <laughs> You know, one of the questions I've had for for our business is whether we can recover fast enough, you know, that every new technology that's come along, we have been slow to adopt. And this, it seems to me, is an area where if we can overcome that fear, we can get out ahead. So reassure my people that, uh, that this is more of an opportunity than a threat. That's exactly right. And and I, I welcome that opportunity, especially sitting on, if you will, you know, the tech side of the joint solution. Um, having seen both sides of that, you know, in that world of intelligence, it wasn't enough that we had reams of classified information. Humans still had to brief that information in the Pentagon, right? And other solutions that, you know, I've worked with in this space, it's it's still the the interpretation and decision-making cycle around information that requires the expertise, the knowledge, the years of experience of humans to be able to understand what to do with it. Even in the world of generative AI, generative AI is only as good as the available information to it. But we're talking about disruptions, right, to some of that and how we want to be able to leverage the human expertise to help guide us through those through those opportunities. So, you know, what I would say is um, we are incredibly grateful for the opportunity to partner with people with that type of experience. We can bring the engineers and the data scientists and the technology solution to the table, um, but it's it's the marriage with, with that expertise that really makes the magic happen. Great. Okay, I hope I I hope that the message that comes out of this is that that the technology is an enabler and a facilitator and a platform on on which great communicators can can build. Um, you know, and and that it will lead to an increase in sort of value added work rather than make work, which has always been the um, the balance in in our profession. I think um, I I would love to spend more time discussing the the technology because it's the part that I least understand. Um, and I feel like I've learned a lot in the last half hour and could learn a lot more if we continued the discussion. Uh, but I think I'm going to have to wrap that up for, for now. Um, I really appreciate everybody's time and input. Thank you very much. A fascinating topic. Uh, maybe we can come back in, in a year or so and talk about, um, you know, how many corporate reputations and, uh, and and brand profiles have been saved by, um, by, by cognitive AI and its combination with uh, senior communications people. Thank you very much indeed, Caroline, Zach, and Chad. Thank, Thank you, Paul.
You've been listening to the Provoke podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers.